It's good to see everybody once again today. A special welcome to those of you that are with us online. Numbers of people still gathering with us in our online community, wherever you may be. We're grateful for you, and we thank God that you're, we're here with us this morning. And a special welcome to those of you that are our guests today. Let's put our hands together and welcome all of our folks into the house, guests and members alike. <clears throat> Big days in our country. Y'all are aware of election on Tuesday, right? Some of y'all, like me, you've already voted. How, how many of you have already voted here today? Yeah, goodness gracious, that's much of the crowd this morning. Early voting is a good thing, and lots of people are doing it uh, here. Very important time. Some are saying that this is like the most important election in the history of our country. And it may well be, could well be. I've heard that said over the past couple of elections, truth be told. Not the first time that's been said, but it's kind of like saying we're closer now to the coming of Christ than we've ever been. People have been saying that for 2,000 years, right? And it seems like in recent election, everybody, this is the most important election we've ever had, and it's just as true. They all seem to have a more urgent uh, sense about them in these important days, and that's uh, certainly true. Let me just say this morning, I'm going to talk about some issues today. That'd be okay with everybody? I'm not going to tell you who to vote for, but I'm going to tell you how to vote. How about that? And I think I can do that because there are some issues that the Bible speaks directly to. We are not aligned at Hillcrest with any particular party, nor should we be. We don't get into bed with any political party, and we never will. Uh, but it stands to reason for those of us who read the Bible and understand the Word of the living God that our role is a very clear role as a church. We are here to make disciples of all nations. We're here to preach the gospel. That's our point, and that's our purpose as a church. We want to make disciples of Jesus Christ. We're not here to make Republicans. We're not here to make Democrats. We're not here to make elephants or donkeys. So political affiliation is not a test of fellowship at our church. It never has been, never will be. Now, there may be times where God's people purport values that tend to more align with one party than the other. I can remember my lifetime. You couldn't find a Republican in a Southern Baptist church. And now it kind of goes the other way, doesn't it? But that's not to say that we adopt a platform as a church. We don't adopt a party platform. The only thing that we adopt at Hillcrest is this book right here. We adopt the Bible. And so, if you're like me, I want to know uh, what God's Word says about any and every issue that's important for me as a believer, and certainly any and every issue that's important, I think, to living in a land of freedom and opportunity. But you do want to be very clear because sometimes we can make the opposition the enemy, and you never want to do that. If you've got to turn somebody into the enemy, turn the enemy into the enemy because our enemy is the devil. It's not other people. You start writing off political people that you disagree with, and you're eliminating half of the mission field of the United States of America. And so we don't want to do that. I long for a church that's got a multiplicity of people from different political backgrounds. If you're not building relationships with people who don't think politically just like you do, you're not doing your job as a believer. You're not following Christ very closely. Because we want to see people inviting people who aren't like them to church. Uh, 
Because you know what our purpose is? It's to speak the eternal word of God into their life so that they may have their messed up lives changed just like we had our messed up lives changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ and the person of Jesus Christ. So the church is not a political institution, but that doesn't mean that those of us who are believers privileged to live in a land of freedom and opportunity. Aren't you thankful to be a citizen of the United States of America? Amen. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't be involved in the political process. I argue that you should be involved in the political process. Nor does it mean that you shouldn't seek to honor God in terms of how you vote. I think the first consideration of every follower of the Lord Jesus Christ is how will my vote best honor God and His righteousness? Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, the Bible says. And I think that surely should include how you vote. Your vote ought to be shaped by your worldview. And if you're a Christian, your worldview should be shaped by the Bible. And what that means is, as a believer, my vote ought to be biblically Informed. I've often heard people say, well, I just don't think I need to impose my religious convictions on other people or on society at large through the political process. Well, let me ask you this. Would you rather a completely secular person impose their convictions on you? All politics is an attempt to legislate a particular viewpoint on society. All of it. So somebody's worldview is always going to win. Somebody's worldview is always going to prevail, and God's people, of all people, ought to want that viewpoint as much as possible to be based, I think, on divine truth and on the righteousness of God. Don't you know that Christians in other parts of the world this very day would give anything if they could only have a voice in their government? But they can't. But I rejoice today that we can. Amen. And we should. And I think we ought to want the outcome of this and every deliberative process to be an outcome that leads to the active blessing of God upon this land and upon our people. A century and a half ago, the great British pastor Charles Haddon Spurgeon said these words, very apropos. I often hear it said, do not bring religion into politics. This is precisely where it ought to be brought, amen, and set there in the face of all men as on a candlestick. He's writing in Great Britain, so he would say, I would have the cabinet and the members of parliament do the work of the nation as before the Lord. And I would have the nation, either in making war or peace, consider the matter by the light of righteousness. That's exactly what I'm talking about. And that's exactly what the Bible says, Proverbs 14 and 34. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. And that being the case, don't you think it makes good sense to know the righteous response to the issues that face us in this election or in any other election for that matter? Now, as you go into the ballot booth, you may never have all the issues uh, and all the wrinkles ironed out completely. There's a ton of complexity into a lot of what we deal with. Every consideration may not always be crystal clear, and the Lord knows there ain't no perfect candidates. Amen. And truthfully, there never really have been. It seems like in our country, in a two-party system, the dualistic approach 
typically between two people that we have is always a lesser of, isn't it? There's always something in a candidate that tends to have to be overlooked. So we have to look at the issues and try to determine which of these two people who are going to be president of the United States are going to best reflect my worldview as a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ and best promote the righteousness that the Bible says exalt a nation. How will my vote most obviously honor God and reflect the truth of His Word? What does the Bible say? So whether you eat or whether you drink or whatever you do, would you finish the sentence with me? Do it all to the glory of God. And surely, as consequential as it is, that should include how you vote. Now, what I'd like to do this morning is simply offer a biblical perspective on some really important issues that I think do confront us in these important days and have for a long, long time. When it comes to political candidates, uh, I'm just speaking personally this morning. If I could sit down with them, these are the kinds of things that I would want to know. These are the kinds of things that I, as a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, would ask them. We could talk about a hundred of them this morning, but you want to get to lunch on time today. So I'm, I'm going to mention four. I'm going to talk about three. I'm going to mention four because I'm pretty sure I'm going to run out of time, and one of them we'll come back at a later time and, 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 and deal with more fully. I picked these four out because these are the four that are clearly articulated in our church's statement of faith. So I'm not going to talk about anything that we haven't talked about before, and I'm not going to talk about that you should know when you join this church because they're right there in the Baptist faith and message, which is our statement of faith. The first thing that I'm going to want to know is where do the candidates stand on the sanctity and dignity of human life? I'm going to want to know that because I think that's a really big issue that matters to God. So if I could have a conversation with both men who are running for president or people that are running for other offices for that matter, the first thing that I would ask them is to please consider the incredible value of human life. And if they have to err, to always err on the side of life. I mean, we've been having this discussion in the United States around political election time for about 50, 60 years now. Issues surrounding the right to life, man, they've dominated political conversations. And after all that time, like six decades now, the nation is pretty much still divided right down the middle on this issue. Now, there are probably not five people in the room that could name more than one significant Supreme Court uh, case. But it's like everybody in the room knows Roe versus Wade, right? 1973, your pastor was 10 years old when that came down. And in that ruling, of course, the Supreme Court ruled that an unborn child's not a person. It's not an individual. It's really not even a human being. It's just potential life, and therefore not protected under the United States Constitution. And since that ruling, of course, over 60 million babies have been aborted in this country. That's 1.5 million abortions every year three abortions every minute, one every 20 seconds in the United States of America. If you were to erect a monument to all of those children whose lives have not come to fruition 
And that monument was built in the same dimensions of the Vietnam Veterans Memorial. The Vietnam, that, that memorial would have to be over 80 miles long to include all the names. This is the fundamental ethical question of our time because it deals with the critical issue by which a society has the right to call itself civilized, namely the question of life and the relative value of life. Why is life so valuable? Because God made it. God created life. Genesis 1 and verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And it's that statement alone, plus a host of others throughout the Word of God that help us to understand that the taking of human life innocently, whether it be from cradle to the grave, through abortion or infanticide or euthanasia, all of that stuff is terribly, terribly wrong in the eyes of God, and it's wrong in the eyes of God because of the uniqueness of human life. Humans are made in the very image of God, and they're made, by the way, in the image of God from the time of their conception, not just from the time of their birth. That's undeniably when life begins. In the Roe versus Wade decision, the justices said that the fetus was not a separate entity unto itself. It's only potential life, which is part of the mother's body. But it's interesting to me that nobody's much debating when life begins anymore, not even the pro-choice crowd, because to them, that's beside the point. And anybody that uses any form of contraception knows exactly when life begins. Science and technology have affirmed that in ways that are unmistakable, and of course, the Scripture clearly affirms it, Psalm 139, 13, for you form my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. I think it was David who said, surely I was afraid, or surely I was sinful, rather, from the time my mother conceived me. David considered himself to be someone who came into this world under the scourge of sin before he was ever born, while he was still in his mother's womb. John the Baptist, of course, leapt in his mother's womb when he came into the presence of Christ, who was still in his mother's womb at the time. And God told the prophet Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you. Now, let me just say this morning, that is our biblical position as the church, always has been, always will be, until Christ comes again. But I, I do want to say very clearly this morning, particularly to those who may have had an abortion or those who are listening today, whether you're in the room or online, who may have even encouraged somebody else to have an abortion. You know what I'm most thankful for? I'm most thankful that the gospel of Jesus Christ is a gospel of unconditional forgiveness and unconditional acceptance before the Lord. Can I remind everybody in the room today that we're all depraved from the time of our birth, from the time of our conception. We're all lost. We're all messed up. We're all sinners. We all foul the ball. 
And the last thing in the world that you need, if you're someone here today or listening, and the last thing that I need to be pronouncing is a gospel of condemnation, because that's really no gospel at all. This is a place of love. It's a place of grace. It's a place of mercy. None of us deserve to be accepted by God. Nobody deserves to be forgiven by the Lord, but we are and can be. And so if you've made a decision that you've regretted, let me just say to everybody here this morning, welcome to the club. Welcome to the club. God forgives, and so do we. You're welcome right here in the midst of the rest of us who have all fallen short of the glory of God. And we're still all beggars trying to tell other beggars where to find bread. Amen. Trying to seek justice and love mercy and walk humbly and obediently with the Lord. But we preach the truth that life has value. And it has value because we're created by God in the image of God. And as an informed believer, I'm going to want to know how the candidates are going to recognize and support the value of human life. Everybody with me, say amen. Secondly, where do the candidates stand on matters related to marriage and family? It's another critical issue of our times. It's a question fundamental to the healthy, functioning uh, growth of any society, question necessary to even a civilized society. How do you define family? And what you're going to do to encourage and foster strong, stable families, not as the legislature defines a family, but as God defines a family in His eternal Word. A few years ago, NBC aired the program, The New Normal. And in that program, two male dads joined uh, with a surrogate single mother to help them create a baby and start the family. Now, let me just say this morning, uh, if that's the new normal, then we all really do need to be concerned because that's not a new normal at all, and that's certainly not the way that God has developed the family, and it's not the way God defines a family. Wasn't that long ago, in 1996, we had a Democratic president who signed what was known as the Defense of Marriage Act. 1996, I remember 1996. Wasn't that long ago. That defined marriage as consisting of a man and a woman overwhelmingly passed in a bipartisan way the Congress of the United States. That just goes to show you how far you can come in about 20 years, because that really wasn't all that much debated. The next Democratic president, who initially campaigned as a supporter of traditional marriage, changed his mind about that in the middle of his term. And it wasn't long after that the Defense of Marriage Act was ruled unconstitutional, and of course, The Supreme Court has spoken to this and other issues, and same-sex marriage is now the legal law of the land. But this is a critical matter spiritually because you know as well as I do, I mean, for over like five, six thousand years, the family had only been defined one way. There was no new normal. There was no alternative to that. And the problem with that is if you start redefining marriage, you're going to destroy and undermine one of the critical building blocks of this or any other stable society, and eventually the society itself is going to crumble right along with it. What is marriage as defined by God? Who, by the way, it was God who defined the institution of marriage and invented the whole thing to begin with. Marriage was not the idea of two cave dwellers who clubbed each over the head with clubs and said, you know what? 
I'm going to take you unto myself, and you and I are going to join ourselves at the hip together, and we're going to live together, and we're going to have a family, and we're going to change the whole culture because we've made this decision. That's not how it got started. We read about marriage in the very first book of the Bible right alongside creation, and it's not really complicated. You know what marriage is as defined by God? One man joined supernaturally with one woman becoming one flesh for one lifetime. That's marriage. The Bible says in Genesis 2, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become what? One flesh. And then you come over to the New Testament. You say, well, I want to know what Jesus said about the matter. Well, Jesus did have a lot to say about the matter. And you can read for one, Mark chapter 10, Jesus affirmed that first marriage and then affirmed the continuing importance of that first marriage to his present day when he says in Mark 10 and verse 6, from the beginning of creation, God made the male and female so they are no longer two but one flesh. And then Jesus adds his own commentary, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Never forget that marriage is a picture of the gospel. Marriage is a picture of supernatural union. In the same way that God saves you and then becomes one with you, moving into your life, you are in Christ and Christ is in you. In the same way, this is what happens to a man and a woman when they get married. They become literally one in each other, bound together by the glory of God in Christ. The two cease to be two and they become one flesh, the Bible says. Complementary beings coming together physically and spiritually as one for the purpose of continuing the human race defined and created the image of God, made in the image of God. In fact, what was the very first command in the Bible? I mean, the first command, like the first command that God ever gave, be fruitful and multiply has to do with sex. First command in the Bible. Amen. Two complementary beings coming together for mutual enjoyment and procreating divine image bearers who can bring honor and glory to God. That's what marriage is all about biblically and scripturally. And there is no alternative to that. There simply is no new normal. There's a lot I could say about this, but one thing I need to say is that this is not a statement against any individual as a person. Y'all hear me? Amen? I mean, I'm, we want to teach this is divine truth, and it's in just about every statement that we have. It's in our Constitution and bylaws. It's in our marriage statement. It's in everything. It's in our statement of faith. So there's nothing new about what we believe here concerning marriage in the family. It's as old as the Scriptures. But I want to make it very clear that we're not against people, even people who have a different viewpoint than us. And I'm telling you, just as in the same way as before, we ought to be befriending people. We ought to be building relational bridges to people who don't always think like us and, 
and respond like us and believe like us, even in these critical matters, because this is what God's people do. We love each other unconditionally as God has loved us, and we want healing for all people. We want all people to step into the light of God's divine purpose for the life, and God has a plan and purpose for every human life. Only God can change a human life. And God wants to change human lives, and every single one of us, gay or straight, need to be changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we need to be building relational bridges to people and loving people. I pray that we have a host of people that attend our church from week in and week out who don't think like us necessarily politically, and even who don't think like us in terms of matters of sex in the family, because everybody needs the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so let's love them unconditionally and let's teach them the divine truth, but let's always do it with love and respect because this is not only a place of truth, it's a place of grace. And it's a place of restoration and it's a place of transformation. And the Lord knows we all need it. So as an informed believer, I'm going to want to know how any candidate would plan to support and encourage strong and healthy marriages and families as they're defined by the truth of God's Word. And then thirdly, where do the candidates stand on matters of religious liberty? Religious freedom. This is a big-time item today because religious freedom is being chipped away in our country. It's always been a thing in our country. Our, Our country was founded on the principle of a free church in a free state. And this is a matter that's without question significantly under threat because there are those in our country today that want to, here's the thing, there are people in our country today that want to categorize everything that I've said up to this point as hate speech. With, With a punitive action in response to it. And the mantra is, oh, we believe in religious freedom. You can think any way you want and believe any way you want, you just can't say it. That's the mantra of the day. And so we've got to preserve what we know is religious liberty at, at all costs because our nation's first freedoms are freedom of speech, freedom of expression, freedom of assembly, freedom of conscience, freedom of religion, all of which are under threat as they never have been before. So as a believer, obviously, I'm going to want to know what any candidate is going to do to protect and preserve and defend a free church in a free state. And you know why? Because these kinds of rights are natural rights. They're not rights that are granted to us by the state. They're rights that are granted to us by God. By God. We have these kinds of rights independently of the state. The state cannot grant them and the state cannot take them away. All the state can uh, can do is affirm them. Because they come to us naturally. That's what the founders said. Now, in this country, we have the First Amendment to our Constitution, which is there not so much to protect the government from the workings of the church, quite the opposite. The First Amendment is there to protect the church from the unwanted and unwarranted intrusion of the government on the classic freedoms that we enjoy. Our government may not prohibit the free exercise of religion, but that's precisely what's at stake. We saw it recently, for example, in the Affordable Care Act's mandate to 
um, require that institutions like Catholic-led uh, Catholic or Catholic-run institutions provide a contraception clause that covered all of their employees. Now, the problem is, of course, you know that that's something that historically violates the Catholic Church's uh, fundamental belief system. And so the government in that case was trying to force a Catholic-led entity, specifically the Little Sisters of the Poor, from doing something that was, uh, or toward doing something that was a gross violation of their conscience. And this, of course, was true for other Christian organizations, colleges and universities, Christian colleges and universities, for example, privately held companies like Hobby Lobby, who are Christian-led organizations. They wanted to do the same thing with them. And those privately held companies didn't really have an objection to contraception coverage. They provided that for their employees. The issue was what was known as an abortifacient, so-called morning-after pill, something that destroys an already fertilized ovary. And that was problematic to these leaders of these Christian companies and Christian colleges and universities and the like. Most of those groups file suit, and the Supreme Court overturned those cases, but only by about that wide, five to four. So, I mean, imagine that, four people not concerned at all about the religious freedom of those groups. Now, it's hard not to make a connection between the religious liberty issues that we now face and the sexual revolution that we've all experienced for the past few years. Listen, the two of those things are directly connected because that's the one lobby that wants to shut down free speech in terms of religious expression more than any other single lobby. We have one candidate in this election who in a town hall meeting just a few days ago said that he would unconditionally support transgender demands even among eight and 10-year-old children. That's what he said. Now, that's something I'm going to want to know. I'm going to want to know that. Regardless of who said it and regardless of what party label they wear, I'm going to want to know that. And you know why? Because I'm pretty sure most young children don't even think that way. I'm pretty sure that if that's something they're dealing with, they're dealing with it because of what's being foisted on them by somebody else. Because that's not the way little kids naturally think. There are those who have made it their mission in life, mark it down, to eradicate any kind of diverse opinion, particularly on matters of sexuality. Earlier this year, the, during the primary process, when you had a bunch of candidates running, there was one candidate who went even so far as to say that churches ought to have their tax-exempt status revoked if they openly speak in ways that he defined as hateful or discriminatory. That's a real concern of mine. Churches have never, in the 200 and nearly 40-year history of this country, churches have never paid taxes. Never. And can you imagine if the tax-exempt status of any and every church is revoked and this church has to all of a sudden carry a burden, particularly our church, of $40 million in property? That's a real issue. It's a religious freedom issue is what it is. And you have to have your head in the sand to think that it's not under threat. 
So those issues have been and will continue to be, I'm afraid, on the ballot. And those threats are very real threats. And I'm going to want to know where the candidates stand so that I can make a decision that's consistent with the righteousness of God and the historic liberties of our nation. So these are like three really big issues, the sanctity of human life, uh, marriage and the family, uh, religious liberty. Now, time doesn't permit me because the wall clock says I'm done. But there's a fourth that I would add, and that is the issue of racism and justice. I mean, that's, in our, that's the, like the last line in the Pledge of Allegiance. One nation under God, indivisible, with what? And for all. And this is a real issue in our country. And this issue is not going away either. And this issue is also addressed in the Baptist faith and message in our very statement of faith. We conducted a panel discussion on that earlier this summer, which is part of the reason I'm not addressing it in detail here. We already have in a way. And next Sunday, we begin a new series from the Old Testament book of Malachi, and Malachi is going to deal with it. You literally have to rip most of the prophets of the Old Testament out of your Bible if you started overlooking matters of the church or the assembly of God's people as a harbinger and a supporter of matters pertaining to equal justice under law. It's all over the Bible. And the church should speak into that issue in ways that are crystal clear. And if I could sit down with a candidate, that would be one of the top four things that I would query them about. All kinds of issues we could talk about. I don't have time nor the inclination to get into policy issues, constitutional issues, all of that stuff, important though they all are. What we've mentioned here this morning are what I consider to be the critical biblical issues of this election, any other election that we may have that's conducted in a free society. I'd never tell you who to vote for. That's none of my business. But I have no problem telling you or any other assembly of God's people what we as the people of God from a biblical perspective ought to consider and how a believer should have his vote or her vote informed by the eternal, enduring, inerrant, infallible, authoritative word of the living God. And speaking of that word, here's what it says. Righteousness exalts a nation. Sin is a reproach to any people. Let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Therefore, whether you eat or whether you drink or whatever you do, brothers and sisters, let's do it all for the glory of God, including how we vote. This is God's Word. And I'll just take that as an amen this morning.